Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Father. Date of birth? Friday, 31st of December, 1937. You're living with your daughter at the moment? Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. <laughs> Paris. They don't even speak English there. <laughs> Dad, I'd like you to meet Laura. How oh. do you do, sir? I say, you're gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> I must say, he's charming. Yeah. Not always. Laura has come round to help you. I don't need her or anyone else. I can manage very well on my own. Everything all right? Who are you? Actually, it's me. Paul. Who? I live here. What is this nonsense? Anne? It's me. Ah, there she is. Your father seemed a bit confused. Something wrong? Where's Anne? Sorry? Anne, where is she? I'm here. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat. Isn't it? You see, the situation is very simple. My daughter is of the opinion that I cannot manage on my own. I'm so sorry about this. Why? She understands perfectly. It's important. I explained it all to you. Why do you keep looking as if there's something wrong? Everything is fine. I think she tries to do the best she can for you, Anthony. Everything will be all right. I promise you. There's something funny going on. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Father, and the story is as follows. A man refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages. As he tries to make sense of his changing circumstances, he begins to doubt his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of his reality. The film is starring Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Mark Gaddis, Imogen Poots, Rufus Sewell, and Olivia Williams. It is written and directed by Florian Zeller, co-written by Christopher Hampton. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Tom O'Brien. Hi, everybody. Ryan C. Showers. Hello. Will Mavity. Mommy. <laughs> and so, Dan Bear. Thanks for the film. This is my podcast, isn't it? What are you talking about? We've been doing this all the time. Of course we have. Yeah. So... Here today to talk about The Father. Finally, my God. <laughs> it feels like this movie has been talked about longer than any other movie in the 2020 film year. Premiered at Sundance 2020. So I know for me, from the time that I first saw a movie to the time that I actually have got a chance to review it here on the podcast, this might be the longest gap 
that I've ever had since then. Um, I've been fortunate enough to catch it a few more times since then, though, uh, luckily for me. And I know everyone else here has had a chance to catch it at a festival or virtual screening, one place or the other. It is finally being released pretty soon by Sony Pictures Classics. It is time to talk about it, especially considering it is a huge Oscar contender this year. So why don't we first start off with Tom O'Brien. Tom, what did you think of The Father? This is a devastating film that from beginning to end, I found myself absolutely disoriented, which made me even more anxious. Uh, It is a, I think it's the best horror film of 2020 uh, because the, you are so confined in a, in a space with your being very unsure as to what's actually real and what's actually not. It just throws a curve at you time after time after time. And I found myself totally engrossed from beginning to end. And I cannot recommend this highly enough. The film, of course, is based on a Tony Award winning play by Florian Zeller, who adapted his own play uh, to the screen here. Dan Baer, you are the only one of us who had a chance to see the play uh, when it was uh, premiering in New York with Frank Langella, who won the Tony Award for his performance in this. So what did you think of the film adaption of The Father? So when they announced that they were making a film of this and that Anthony Hopkins was going to be taking over uh, Frank Langella's role from the stage, I was it, I was immediately like, that is going to be amazing. Hopkins is going to win the Oscar again, finally. And I have no idea how they're going to turn that into a movie. Um, even though I was pretty confident that it would be a great movie, I had no clue how they were going to do it because on stage, it was very clear that it was meant for the stage. And when I heard that Florian Zeller was not only adapting his own play, but directing it as well, I, I was very, very nervous. <laughs> And then when I finally saw it at this year or this past year's uh, Toronto International Film Festival, I was so blown away by it. Florian Zeller is a magician. I, he, this play is a magic trick. I have, like I want to study it to see how it works. Like it is so damn good at setting you up for something that you're not expecting and then flipping the switch and turn it, turning it into just something else entirely. And it is directed to perfection. Um, the production design is incredible. The editing is, and the performances obviously are fantastic. Obviously Anthony Hopkins is great. Obviously, Olivia Coleman is great, although she's even better than you may think because she's just that good in it. And even Olivia Williams and Rufus Sewell and Mark Gaddis, Imogen Poots, they're all fantastic. And just, I, I love this movie so much. And for something that is so devastating, for me to say that I can't wait to watch it again is like really impressive, but I, I do, I can't wait to watch it again every time. 
and because it's just so well done and so brilliant and how it gets everything to work the way it uses um stage conventions and cinematic conventions to throw us off (laughs) it is it's it's genius and it's a work of genius and i can't say enough good things about it all right all right passing it over next to ryan c showers so going into this you know I already had the added benefit of the festival hype. Uh, most everyone had seen it before I did um, in December. Therefore, it created a different t- type of experience for me. Um, the film was a lot simpler than I was expecting it to be, yet that simplic- within that simplicity, uh, the f- it allowed for an opportunity for the film to really sneak up on me, which it did. Um, and it circumvented all of my expectations. Um, it, the movie kind of messed with my head a lot, um, and that's a tribute to the vision that Florian Zeller creates um, with adapting his his own material, um, and you know, edit and the way that the the film is edited creates such a, a seamless um, magic trick in a way. Um, it's it's a really special film uh, that and it creates a nice balance that a lot of films don't typically get. Um, I have to say, this is actually my favorite. Olivia Coleman performance, and I love her um, in general. I love The Favorite. I love The Crown. Um, but this is, I think, the best work of her career. It's so emotional and um, thorough and absorbed. Like I, I think it's amazing. And, um, of course, Anthony Hopkins is... Uh, this is a highlight of his career. Okay. Will Mavity. Yeah, this is one that I went into just hearing all this insane hype for. And it's a film I definitely liked in terms of it's certainly a very affecting movie. You can see the full might of Zeller's storytelling talents on display. Um, I wouldn't say that it doesn't justify its existence because he clearly takes it far beyond its stage origins. However, I did leave the film feeling a little bit more like it was an exercise in filmmaking technique than a fully realized film and oddly felt that even at a lean 94 minutes or whatever it was, it actually ran a little bit long. Um, It's an extremely well-made film I am incredibly impressed with the performances, but I don't think I'm quite as rapturous over it as some. All right. Josh Parm, what about you? Um, so I walked into this movie having understood that obviously from like the Sundance reviews of it and at TIFF that it had gotten really good notices. But um, it, to be honest with you, I was a little skeptical because sometimes – Adaptations of plays can be a little stuffy sometimes, especially when the author of that play is also doing the adaptation. And I was a little skeptical of that. I will be completely honest. And when the movie was done, I was completely bowled over by it. I think that this movie obviously like has very impressive performances. And I think that was a given knowing uh, when you just look at the cast involved in this film. But I am incredibly impressed by this filmmaking and i feel like it's so weird that dan when you said that you saw the play initially and you couldn't imagine initially how 
this material could be a movie. And I looked at this film and was almost like struck by how it could have even been on the stage because the, yeah, yeah everything in this film is just so <laughs> cinematic. The way that it communicates perspective feels so incredibly cinematic yeah. to me. And I just found myself so enthralled by that. I think that this is an incredibly impressive debut. I, I can't even believe it's a first time right. filmmaker. It's, yeah. it's so well done. I think that the way that it crafts, this idea of how we can get inside this man's head and his psychology and his mental state is so, uh, it's just so detailed to me. And I've seen the movie twice at this point and I am devastated every time the ending just really just, I just crumble into a, a puddle of tears by the end of it. And I think it's one of the best movies of the year. I saw this when I, when, when I saw this at Sundance, I went in with, literally zero expectation. I had no idea that this was based on a play. I had no idea what this was even going to be about. I didn't know anything. So imagine myself watching the movie, no trailer, no idea. Matt, that was how I went into the play. I really? knew nothing about it other than that Franklin Jello was in it and it was based on a French play. I mean, I went in and I was just like, oh, it's a Sundance movie starring Anthony Hopkins. Okay. <laughs> you know, little did I know. <laughs> and I have to admit, like everything that is being said right now in terms of the immersion into this man's psyche and the way that Florian Zeller is able to communicate that through cinematic language, through the use of editing, the production design changes, the rhythm of the dialogue even, it might be some of the most creative uses of film editing I have seen since Christopher Nolan used it in Memento to put the audience in the point of view of the character. So we were witnessing events the same way that the lead character is witnessing them as well. I was so confused while watching it. I didn't know <laughs> what the movie was even about for a little bit until I did finally start to realize, oh, my God, it is a story about dementia. And. It, that just completely floored me at that point, because now there's a bigger conversation to be had than once you start diving into the nuances of dementia, not just for the individual, but also the impact that it has on the loved ones as well. And the personal decision that those loved ones have to make in terms of do we take care of, in this case, Anthony, him, you know, do we take care of him? Do we give him over to a nursing home? There is a bit of guilt that comes along with that. And for every person, it's a very, very personal decision. And I think that this screenplay does a really great job of really exploring that inner conflict that Anthony's daughter and played brilliantly by Olivia Coleman, as mentioned before, is struggling with in this movie because Anthony clearly is unwell, as Rufus Sewell says in two very, very well edited moments at the uh, dining room table he he is ill <laughs> he is very ill and I, I i just found it to be very <sighs> scary but also insightful in how you know if god forbid you know my parents as they get older if i was forced into a situation where i had to decide okay am i going to be the one to take care of them do i have the means to take care of them what am i willing to sacrifice to go through that uh, do I have to get them assist assisted uh, living care? Like the movie, the movie had a greater impact on me than I could ever have expected in that regard. So I, I found it to be incredibly touching. 
And I will fully admit this right up front that I, like a lot of people, have had family members that did suffer through dementia. So I, I will admit Me that too, there is Josh. a very yes. like personal connection that I do feel to this material. But I also think that the way that it represents that, not only from the perspective of those family members, which is the one that I inherently have, but from the perspective of the person who's actually suffering through this disease and trying to give you the perspective of what they're going through and the frustrations that they have around the world that is just constantly changing and they don't understand this change, but also yeah. don't feel like they have the wherewithal to even question what this change actually means. I found all of that so incredibly effective and so deeply moving on a very like foundational level to me that it was just impossible for me not to recognize like the brilliance of that storytelling. Well, I'm really curious about something too. Is there a reason why um, no one tells him that he has dementia? Well, they probably have. He's, he's an unreliable narrator. You know, that's the kind of thing he's of course deliberately going to forget. Yeah. yeah. Olivia Coleman, um, Anne, the character says <laughs> um, a number of times in the film, like we, I, I told you. Yeah. We were like, we were just talking about this before yeah, or something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there is, there is some level of like, especially in some of the scenes, like, does she even know what's happening? Mm. You know, does she know what's going on in his head? Like, do, does she, does she think that this is that he's acting that, you know, he's playing with her because he can be very playful. Oh, well, Mark Gaddis and Rufus Sewell certainly think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, and there are times when it feels like he is perfectly fine and he's fine until he's not. And how difficult that is for her to deal with. And when you think about the fact that <laughs> that character, Anne, well, none of the characters outside of Anthony have a single scene that is fully from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And yet, Olivia Coleman is able to make us feel for her so much. I mean, any time that Anthony brings up her sister, uh, oh Lucy, I mean, Ugh. her face, I, I, I just like her. She just crumbles into a million pieces right before our very eyes. Yes. Well, well, Matt, can I ask? Because so after I first saw it, you and I had a conversation. Um, I, I I'm over the moon about Olivia, Olivia Coleman's performance in this. Um, like I said, I think it's my favorite thing that she's done in her career. Um, you weren't as high on her. And I was just wondering, has that changed for you as you've watched the film over the past year, over and over? Oh, I think she's really good. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think it's a Oscar winning performance is my only my only stance on it. I think she's great, though. Absolutely. I think it's a very interior performance uh, that doesn't have those big showy scenes. But oh. nonetheless, I think uh, Olivia Coleman's Anne is the character to whom I, many, many audiences will relate the most. Oh, yeah. And oh, of course, maybe and maybe that's what got me about this this performance. I don't know. I just found there to be a sweeping emotional element to her performance here that um, made made me connect with her more easily than I have ever before. I mean, the thing that uh, really boggles my mind is the casting of Olivia Williams opposite <laughs> her. <laughs> they are perfectly cast. Because then Anthony is saying, you know, uh, that she reminds him. Well, let me let me rephrase that, because th this is where things start to get like confusing. She he's referring to Emojin Poots as uh, Laura 
and he tells her that she reminds him of his daughter and his daughter is Olivia Coleman's sister who when Olivia Williams then all of a sudden now is playing Laura later <laughs> <laughs> You're like Olivia Williams, Olivia Colman, sisters. And then you start to wonder like, oh, you know, we never see the other sister because obviously she's dead and he does not know that. Um, but, you know, you could very easily read into that Olivia Williams was the sister. And, like, that's probably what she might have looked like in real life. Yeah, it, it, the, the casting of the two of them is so brilliant. I mean, even outside of the f- them having the same first name. <laughs> <laughs> they, they often get confused in real life. There have been yeah. more than a few occasions where I've mixed oh, the two I'm up. <laughs> I remember when they first announced that casting, I'm like, which one of them yeah. is going to be which one? Because it's <laughs> perfect. But like... <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, it's flawless casting because they share a similar look but they don't look exactly the same. Right. Sort of like they could be sisters or cousins. And when, once you put them in similar, but not quite the same costuming, it even doubles that. And so again, like you are right there alongside him. And I think that this film is so brilliant in that, that first scene is so very British domestic drama. Mm-hmm. And it's so, you know, naturalistic. And then all of a sudden, we're somewhere else. As uh, Tom said earlier, it starts to become a horror movie. Yeah. Like, the score at times has this undercurrent of, like, menace to it that genuinely, like, I'm watching this and I'm like, whoa. Like, the tone of this all of a sudden just got really heavy and truly terrifying. Yeah, and the thing that I love about it so much, or one of the things that I love about it so much, (laughs) is that the way it sort of tricks you throughout into thinking that this is going to be one type of movie. And then it reveals itself in in scene after scene to be, nope, not the movie you thought it was. Which is why I'm curious, Will, I want to kind of go back to your opening thoughts a little bit. Is it because the movie is based on this play? It is very constricted in its point of view. Um, Do you feel like it could have been expanded just a little bit more? Or like, I was just I was just curious to kind of unpack, uh, you know, your expectation of the movie. It's something that it's hard to verbalize what I would have liked them to have done. Because, of course, I know it is a very uh, personal POV-driven play, and you don't want to lose what they're going for. But so deliberately, constantly trying to just recreate the mindset and the anxiety of someone while it is a very, I mean, undeniably emotionally affecting. There's a scene where a dinner conversation unfolds and then basically replays itself again that made me want to scream. I mean, it's terrifying. It's it's truly hard to explain. It's just technique-wise, it does not feel stagey, but its existence does in that it's just trying to be a very small recreation of a man's mental experience instead of something more. 
And it's hard to say what I would want. I feel that. And I, I don't want what, to. What more does it need to be? I think I know what I, well, I think I know what he's getting at here because the movie is so personal and subjective from the point of view of its lead character that maybe there's a bit of universality that's lost in that. It, to me, it doesn't feel and I gave it an eight out of ten. So I don't want it to be like I didn't like it. But to me, it feels like it's not a fully realized narrative film. It feels like it's essentially just one act. And I know that, you know, this this maze-like structure, again, is meant to recreate his mindset, but it just felt a little bit limiting. Well, can I, can I comment on that too? Because um, one of the things that um, the movie does mess with our minds with too is... You know, as it's going on, I started to think to myself, okay, this is playing out in real time. Okay. And then all of a sudden, they have that scene where, um, you know, it's like eight o'clock in the evening and he's in his pajamas still. And they're like, oh, we're getting ready for dinner, but it's daylight outside. And the movie's using like all these tricks on you. And all of a sudden, to your point, Will, it's like, this is like, this is, it does feel like it's one act, but it's like so incredibly stretched out with all these twists and turns and like a maze, as you just said, that you don't even know anymore where the structure of the film is at a certain point because the whole point of view of this is supposed to be mirroring his confusion and frustration with the world around him just spiraling out of control. I, I, I have to admit, like, even those little moments, like, uh, like you mentioned, uh, the dinner uh, conversation, you know, little things like that, it messes with the audience as much as it's messing with him. And that is the whole point of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm aware and of I that. just like I, I, what I, he's trying to do. I just I my my I don't understand what you're saying. Is where like it feels like one act. Like, what would the second act of this be? I I guess what I keep coming back to is although it's nice to be able to really emphasize on another level the subjective experience of what the play is doing but i don't know that all plays need to be films and ultimately it felt more like an exercise in technique than a complete movie um and i think it shows how you can use uh the expanded world of a feature to add on to what you can do in stage but it's not necessarily something that screams to me yes this needed to be a film and it's it's a small film. It's a very emotionally restrained film. And there's just something more I wanted. And again, I think it is very good. It's just everyone else has qu- quite literally nothing negative to say about it. And to me, there is this one thing that kind of holds it back because it's very small. It's very static. I, I get where you're coming from, Will. I, the, even this year with like films, plays like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or... One Night in Miami, I, I too had a similar feeling to some of those movies where I thought they were small, constricted and kind of limited in terms of, um, you know, the adaptation from play uh, to screen. But here, while I also do get a sense of that, because, you know, it is very confined to Anthony's world, which really just does exist within this flat, the cinematic technique pushed me over because I felt like this movie had more tricks up its sleeve to kind of get me over that hurdle than the other two movies I mentioned did, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, this felt so much more cinematic than literally any other play adaptation that I can recall. Yeah, no, in recent memory, sure, definitely. I, I feel that too. And well, I I do understand I do understand well where you're coming from with the notion of you appreciating this movie for like its its craft and the filmmaking skill, but maybe feeling like the emotional depth of the story is a bit shallow. I can understand that perspective. I think for me, I do think that the movie has that um, that depth to it. I do think that it explores the emotional states of these characters very effectively. And, you know, is that because I can relate to it on a very personal way? Maybe so. Maybe I can admit that. But I do think that the way that this film is crafted does recognize where, like, how to connect the craft that it is displaying back to where the emotional journeys of these characters are going throughout the entire film. And I still found that to be incredibly moving and very effective in the way that they communicated that. Who, who's seen this movie more than once? Me. Uh, I've seen it twice. Yeah, twice. I've seen it twice. Has anyone, because uh, this was a, a reaction I had to it on a repeat viewing. I'm just curious if this happened for anybody else. The first time I saw it, I was so knocked out by it. I mean, like, completely overwhelmed by the techniques, the performances, everything, you know, just completely overwhelmed to the point where I thought this was like an epic piece of movie making. And then on a second viewing, it like kind of hit me that, oh, wow, this was really only 97 minutes long. Oh, like it really does only take place in this one room. And all of a sudden, like it felt like the epicness that I felt on that first viewing, because maybe, you know, I had such or zero expectation of it. I, I did start to feel a little bit of that um, smallness as uh, as Will is describing. Did anyone else like kind of get a sense of that? Why I prefaced my opening statement with like the expectations that everyone set for it. Like, I don't really view this as an epic movie. I view it very much like I view it more subtly than I thought I would. Like, based on the reactions from the people who saw it at Sundance and throughout the year, I was expecting it to be almost like violently emotional. And I would say that, like, or like, or more aggressive throughout. And it's not. It's, I would argue that it's, it's very subtle and clever and um, in the way that it presents. Uh, the narrative and its aims. And I, so I don't know if that's a bad thing, though. I think that's to the film's strength. Yeah. Until the end, until the end. Then it just explodes where the yeah. emotion yes. is just like, it hurts. It really hurts, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the filmmaking technique, and that is absolutely something that should be talked about with this film because it's so amazing. But like, all of that technique would be nothing if it didn't have that performance from Anthony Hopkins really anchoring it. And to me, like saying that the movie is not, is too technique focused or too intellectual, too much of an exercise completely denies all of this incredible work that Anthony Hopkins is doing to make you feel for this character. I don't think I was saying it's too technique focused. I think Hopkins is another one of its aspects that is excellent. I think it might even be the best work of his career. He's extraordinary. To me, a film can be can have extraordinary performance. And he and Coleman certainly bring more to the characters than is on the page. And the technique is spectacular. 
I think a, a project can have multiple incredible parts and still come together for a whole that is a little bit shy of what I wanted. I mean, he, he is the heart of the story. He's excellent. And again, both he and Coleman are, are wonderful in what they're able to showcase going on underneath the skin of their characters. But I don't think that necessarily that or the formidable technique on display necessarily negate the ultimate lingering issue that I had with it. Let me ask you guys uh, this question, because I've been saying this for a year now at this point. I think that Anthony Hopkins's performance in this movie is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. Yep. Does anyone here think that's a little hyperbolic? Does anyone agree with me on that? Where do you no. all stand? Um, I, I honestly think that this is his best performance. And I recognize that that includes a career that has mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs in it. I still think that this is his best performance. Yeah, <laughs> Howard's yeah. End, Remains of the Day. Yeah. You know, like th- yeah. a career full of great performances, but this is. And I think that's, that uh, is, helps to really, uh, uh, really define how devastating this is because we all have a history with Anthony Hopkins. He he has these wonderful, sophisticated roles, uh, intelligent people um, that we that has carried him through his career. And when we first meet the character Anthony, he's very much like that character. But then when you recognize what a hollow shell of a man he is becoming, and his name is also Anthony. It does cross your mind that, oh, I don't want Anthony Hopkins to wind up like this. Yes. It has a lot more power to it. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Dan, really curious, was uh, he named Anthony in the play? 
Uh, and the play was Andre, but it was also a French play. So. Oh, see, like, I think that's deliberate then. It, it, like, it feels deliberate then to do that, right? As a way to get us as an audience then, um, as as Tom just said, to really relate because we all have a history with Anthony Hopkins. He's been acting for decades. And if I remember correctly, I think they said they wrote the adaptation with Anthony Hopkins in mind. Yeah, yeah. Florian Zoa actually said that he wanted... Anthony Hopkins in the role, and that's why he changed the name to Anthony, basically just to give it to him. <laughs> well, can can I just express like a slightly dissenting view here? Sure. I don't. I don't think this is. I, I do prefer Silence of the Lambs um, for his work. I, I think it, that's such an iconic character and such a milestone in cinema. That's what I. I that's what I think he'll be remembered for, uh, largely, but also. Uh, like across the mainstream, but also I just think that that's something especially unique. Whereas this is like outstanding and has enormous quality, but it's not as specifically unique. If, if, for my money. Well, there's something to be said for iconic movie characters uh, that stand the test of time. So I, I, I'm, I, I can understand that, Ryan. That's like saying uh, Robert Downey Jr. has given better performances than Iron Man, but he'll always be known for being Iron Man. You know what I mean? That, right, exactly. That's true. But like, I still, I, I would, for my, my personal opinion is Sounds of the Lambs. Sure. Um, however, I will say that the final scene in this film is the best scene he's probably ever done. Um, and I love Anthony Hopkins. Like, you know, I, I love him in Nixon. I, I would have given him the win for that. You know, I love him in Silence of the Lambs. But the, the final scene in this movie is something otherworldly. Yeah. I, I love that um, <laughs> that on stage, this was played by Frank Langella, who also played Nixon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of symmetry happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little, little, little too much almost. Um, the other thing, too, that I noticed on a repeat viewing uh, this time around, too, was the importance of the watch, uh, which is something that yeah. I I honestly did not notice it on the first viewing. I noticed it more on the second viewing that the watch is almost like um, it's almost it's almost like the, the totem in Inception. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, it's the thing that like when he has it, and he can tell what time it is. Um, you know, and, and I was thinking about the, like that day and night reference uh, later on where he's like, you know, they're telling him it's dinner time and he's like, what are you talking about? It's the middle of the day. And, he, and then I think Olivia Coleman says to him, oh, are you looking for your watch? And he realized he doesn't have it on his wrist all of a sudden. Like this movie does a really great job of also establishing that Anthony needs a point of focus in order to stay calm. And the color blue in this movie is a color that helps with concentration and it allows like the mind to focus and thus it can lead to improved memory for people. And so I just found that very interesting how the color blue is um, the, the, the color of choice for the production design for some of the costuming in this movie as a point of focus for the character of Anthony to get to a place of calm. And that really speaks very highly of the production design, which 
my so, god like and i really what's funny is that i remember watching this movie for the first time and i remember dan you saying that the production design was really good and when the movie started yeah. I, I do admit i was watching it and thinking like <laughs> i mean it's a nice looking apartment but i, I don't know if it's the year i think dan's sort of exaggerating a little bit but once you start watching the rest of the film yep. and you understand that the production design is another element that is being used to convey his um, memory at that point and how things have to look very similar to each other but still somewhat different in different locations too because it's not just in that apartment they actually do right. go out and you still have to communicate that it's like oh now I understand and it really is one of the uh, most ingenious uses of production design I've ever seen in a movie when that kitchen changed uh, oh my uh, god uh, 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 excuse <laughs> me <laughs> I literally like there are points in this movie where like it makes you question your own sanity while watching it. Like you're watching that 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 wasn't there. Nope. That 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 wasn't yeah, that the color. The dinner scene the last where it time starts replaying it. is like very much the oh fuck moment. Yep. <laughs> oh my god. I I think about that scene so often cuz like when he does walk back in and you realize that Olivia Coleman and Rufus Sewell are in the exact same positions where the scene started and it creates this loop moment. I, I even had to do a double take and I had to just be like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, because I like was so I, I was so into the movie, so into the movie. I was like lost in it that by that point, you know, it's those little moments like that or the production design changes where as I said earlier, you start to feel like Antony. And that is, as um, someone said earlier, the magic trick of this film. And that's, I guess, what kind of like made me equate it to early Christopher Nolan, like with movies like Memento or The Prestige, where the structure, the cinematic technique and the way that the story unfolds just has a way of messing with our minds that can be playful but also used for devastating dramatic effect as well. And I mean, like the ending final shot of the film with the trees. Uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, Anthony like describes in dialogue uh, just a few moments prior to that final shot, how he feels like a tree that's losing its leaves. And the final shot oh. is these lush, green, healthy trees that are just blowing in the wind and they're so vibrant that is us, the audience, watching the movie in silence, cutting to black. Oh, man. I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that. That ending is just so emotionally, like, hard-hitting. And to be honest with you, even thinking about it right now gets me emotional because that is – I mean, not only are the performances so strong, especially from Anthony Hopkins, who's just – like that's the moment where you like it all just comes crumbling down and you can't help but be moved. But it is so incredibly relatable, especially if you have any kind of experience with people who are going through that. And it, it really just sort of not that you aren't emotional throughout most of the movie, but that's when it like really just kind of goes for the gusto at that moment. And it doesn't feel manufactured or fake. It really feels like this is the culmination of all of this frustration boiling up in this character who now suddenly has to like reconcile with how helpless he is. And it's just so incredibly effective. I think my favorite thing about the ending is that it feels inevitable. 
like a yeah. Greek tragedy. Like this is the only way this story could have ended, but it's, it almost comes out of nowhere. Like he just starts breaking down out of nowhere. And, but you realize at the same time that it's not out of nowhere because it's been building up over the past, you know, 90 minutes that we've been watching, but over the past, I mean, it could be years of yeah. his life that we're, we're watching. And that's layered in very early. Yes. Seeing it a second time, you can just see all of the seeds being planted along the way. Yeah, when she said, I'm thinking about going to Paris and stuff. Yeah. Like early on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it just like... <sighs> It, it kind of inc- it's kind of incredible because um, Ryan, you mentioned earlier that the film like sneaks up on you, and you know throughout Anthony uh, or Anthony Raver is uh, playing or Sir Anthony maybe excuse me um, I should just keep <laughs> correcting myself uh, he's playing it you know with this sense of playfulness confidence anger frustration confusion denial and then finally 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 we get to the very end and. It's not so much acceptance or even understanding still of what's happening. It's just he just hits a breaking point and he can't take it's it anymore. To it. It, yeah, it, it, there you go. Yeah. That's the word. And, and the thing is that 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 has like an effect, like the, the effect that the character is feeling. It kind of transcends to the audience in a way. Like, or it's just like, oh my god, like this is happening. Like it's almost like a jolt. Like it's it, it really the the potency of the father. Um, can't be understated. So with that said, for final thoughts on the film, I'm going to pass it over to Tom first. Tom, any final thoughts on The Father? I think a lot of audience members are going to be surprised by the power of the, the film as it accumulates, and particularly for those audience members who've experienced this in their own families, that last 10 minutes is going to hit you like a two-by-four across the head. Yeah. What about you, Dan? It's really interesting. When I saw the play, I had no context for it. I didn't know what it was going to be. And at that point, um, thank God, every older person in my life was very healthy. And when I saw the film, I knew what I was in for. (laughs) And... Um, my grandfather had passed away after having much, many issues that were dementia related. And my grandmother was having some memory issues as well. And it hit me so much harder than I was expecting because like, I was like, I know where this is going. I know what happens, but the, the little details that the film accumulates, um, over the course of it, uh, the way that he comes back into the apartment at one point from going out to buy something and he puts the groceries away or puts them on the counter and he has the bag and he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he just kind of stuffs it in his pocket. I love the, this setup of, the apartment, how it is like these two long crossing hallways. And so we're never quite sure which direction we're looking or what room is where like another sort of genius 
production design. Well, I, I, I actually, in, in reference to that too, Dan, I mean, when, when they get to the transition from the flat to the hospital oh, and God. those long hallways are still present, yeah. that was another oh moment where the production design oh. blew my mind. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That was the point where I was like, this is the best production design <laughs> of the year. <laughs> like, oh my God. Chill. Because like, we do leave the apartment, but we also we don't leave that set really. I mean, the only time I think that we ever do leave is when he goes to visit the doctor with Olivia Coleman. But it could be argued that that scene is from her perception and not his. Yeah, that that is the one scene where that room looks completely different. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I just the the way he he his walk changes in different scenes is is so great. Um, the way he will turn on a dime to snap especially at Imogen Poots uh, with anger in that first scene with her oh my god it, it's terrifying especially because he's so charming when he does his tap dancing and stuff mm-hmm. yeah gosh he was an engineer and yet he's saying he was in the circus he was a tap dancer like <laughs> it's unbelievable how much of a charmer he is at times I just keeping bowled over by this movie and even on the second time I watched it, like picking up new details, like it is a movie that absolutely, I think, rewards uh, repeat viewings. And I do think it's a work of genius and I think it got better on my second viewing and I will be shocked if it does not keep getting better every time I rewatch. Nope. I've seen it three times and I can confirm it's still pretty damn good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Passing over next to... Ryan C. Showers. One thing that I wanted to bring up is the performance that Anthony Hopkins gives here. It almost, uh, I, I felt very prepared for the performance he gave up until the final scene because of the fact that he gives, a, he, has a, he has a similar character uh, in the movie Proof with Gwyneth Paltrow from 2005. Oh, yeah. uh, which was yeah. which was also based off of a play. Um, the characters are slightly different. Um, the char- his character in Proof is more so going insane, but there is memory loss and like there's a there's an equal disconnect with like you know uh, father daughter relationship and wa- the daughter kind of watching the father um, struggle with old age. So I I felt very I felt like that was almost like a prequel to the father. Um, but the for- performance he he gives here is is richer because of all everything that's going on in in the film. And the second thing is I do think that there is a missing act in The Father within like the last 20 minutes. I feel like there should have been an act featuring another actress who we have seen recently and it should have been titled um I care a lot about The Father. You never cease to amaze me, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and you could edit that out. She would have actually been doing the right thing here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice, Ryan. And she's British, so it would have been perfect. <laughs> God. All righty. Uh, now I'm losing track of everybody. Uh, next up, let's hear from Will. Yeah, as I said, it, it is a movie that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I mean, I do think it's the best work of Hopkins' career. I am so impressed with in every aspect of the filmmaking between the production design and the editing, the blocking, something held it back from perfection for me. I think part of it, the only emotions I felt throughout were anxiety. I I wouldn't say I ever felt strong. And, you know, both my parents, their grandparents uh, have dementia. 
So it's not like I'm not familiar with it. I just couldn't feel anything more than kind of a clinical way of looking at it. Like, oh, that's very sad. The, the only time the emotion really worked with me was the fear. And I thought the fear leaning into the horror elements was remarkably well done. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of wonderful elements working together to make a very good film that just felt like it was missing something that kept me at a teensy bit of a distance and left me wanting just a little bit more. Okay. All right. Josh Parham. I think that the only thing that I would mention is I would bring up the one element that I am kind of critical of in the movie, which obviously overall, I absolutely love this film. But the the one thing that I do kind of find myself not being so in love with is the stuff with uh, the Imogen Poots character. And it's only be it's not because like I find those scenes to be badly written or badly acted because they're not. But I do feel like of all of the sort of emotional conclusions that the movie reaches within its different uh, story elements, that was the one that felt a little kind of like not out of place necessarily, but it has like such a overly dramatic conclusion that it did feel a little disconnected in terms of the other sort of emotions that were happening. And it was the only time where I was like, it's effective, but it didn't quite land with me as hard as I think some of the other parts of the movie does. And like I said, it's not to say that I think it's bad. It's just, it, it was the one section where I just felt like I, we got to the end. And it's like, eh, okay. I, I kind of get what they're going with, but it felt like a little, it didn't feel quite as powerful to me as some of the other stuff in the film. I, I will say that, um, the one thing that I do remember from the uh, in terms of a difference between the play and the film is that that the carer character that she plays is is more of a presence in the play. Like it feels like most of the things that were cut were with that character. Okay, and maybe that's the reason why it feels like when we get yeah. to the end of her section, it's like, it, you know, I get it, and I get what it's supposed to be communicating, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like it does have the same level of nuance and care to the storytelling as a lot of the other sections do. Yeah. Uh, for my final thoughts, all-timer, great performance from Anthony Hopkins, amazing production design, incredible editing. I also cannot believe that this is a first-time feature debut. I mean... What a way to start your filmmaking career, truly. It's one of the best films I've seen this year, easily. And it's one that I, oh God, I will never forget. Um, So with that said, <laughs> my grade out of 10 for The Father is a 9. Ryan, what is yours? I'm an 8 out of 10. All right, William. Yeah, I mean, I said this earlier in the show, but um, despite my qualms with it, it's still a very solid 8 out of 10. Tom O'Brien. For me, it's a solid 9. Dan Bear. When I first saw it, it was a 9. On the second viewing, it was a 10. Mm. Josh Parm. Man, it is very, very close to a 10 for me. I'm still going to go with 9 because I like of just the very tiny issues I have with it, <laughs> but it's like... 
give me another like viewing of it and I could easily give it a 10. But right now I'm going to say a very, very strong nine. So right now, everyone's probably wondering how much longer do we intend to hang around getting on everyone's tits? Well, (laughs) the answer is we still have some awards prospects to talk about here. So with that said, the father currently right now, I remember when I saw this at Sundance and, you know, at different times, this is pre-COVID. And I remember walking out and thinking to myself, "Okay, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman will contend for awards next year. I don't know about everything else because, you know. (laughs) <laughs> it was so early, you know, and, and this is this is an unknown director. I really didn't know how far this was going to go. And then I do remember around the spring or so, I remember telling you guys like early on, like, guys, Florian Zeller is going to be in the director conversation. Like, guys, like this is going to be an editing contender. Like and then uh, obviously, as more people started to see the movie, it just started to become clear that this movie was more of a powerhouse in this covid year than Uh, Previously, I think any of us were expecting it to be. So now we're at a point, though, where it's borderline in a lot of areas, more secure in others. So, Ryan, I'm really curious from your point of view today, this late in the season right now, where do you have the father getting nominated for Oscars? So here's the thing. We've had a lot of conversations um, internally at Next Best Picture about whether or not the father will make it into Best Picture despite getting in everywhere else. I have to say those, uh, and I was subscribing to that, um, to that philosophy um, for a while here. Um, but, you know, I assume it's going to be getting in for actors, supporting actress, screenplay. Um, I think director is very possible. It seems like director is the type of thing that will happen randomly. Just like, a, this is a weird example, but in the way that Cold War broke out and got a, direct, a director nomination, it's just that type of like uh, high art type of a movie that's not th- necessarily threatening that will just show up because the directors really respect it. And European also helps. And European. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the father really performed well at the Golden Globes. And it's going to perform very well at the, at the BAFTAs. I'm sure it's going to get in the top five for best film. And, and won, does, some, then I, won some beefas too. Yes, it did. So I, I think... With, with all of that in mind, even though it didn't get a Critics' Choice nomination for Best Picture, I really do think it is going to get in for Best Picture at the Oscars. Okay. I mean, Will, what are you thinking today? Um, I think Hopkins and Coleman and probably Screenplay are very safe. I want to see how it performs at the rest of the guilds. If it gets in with the American Cinema Editors over some of the other more obvious best picture contenders, or if it gets in for the producers guild, I think both of those would basically ensure that I'm thinking, yes, absolutely. It gets in. Um, I have it right on the edge of picture and it depends on how many nominees we get. And if something like Judas or sound of metal can keep momentum up, or if, they don't perform as well with the rest of the guilds. So it's kind of a coin toss for me as to whether or not it gets into picture. But I think if it gets into picture, then it definitely does open up the possibility for several of those other nominations like editing. And, you know, we saw with Parasite last year, they are sometimes 
open to contemporary films, so maybe production design. I was going to say, I mean, it's probably going to show up at the uh, ADG, the Art Directors Guild for Contemporary Production Design. It has to, yeah, right? God, I hope so. It better. <laughs> I, would be, yeah. I would be appalled if it didn't. And that's the other one. Like, I feel like this has shown up in a lot of places for editing that I wouldn't necessarily have expected it to. Oh, that Critics' Choice nomination for editing was... It was... Like... Yeah. Thank well, you. And didn't and it also won Lafka this year too yeah. for editing. Mm-hmm. The mm. thing about editing is like honestly, I do think if on its best day it, it will get editing. Like it could get six nominations on its best day, I think, or or seven if we count production design. Um, but uh, film editing is so weird right now. I don't think anybody really knows what's going on with the other four <laughs> slots in editing yeah. besides it's true. the Trial of Chicago 7 in first place. So there's a lot of moving parts there. I, I agree. I think we're heading for a year like 2018 where on nomination morning, we're going to be like, holy shit, like three of the main contenders missed yeah, like for these over no three. Or something. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. I, I, I fully predict chaos. Uh, but man, the father, it's interesting because the first time I saw it, I really, really was so impressed by the editing uh, just being used to uh, as a storytelling device, as we kind of mentioned before with the examples that we gave. But watching it again, I realized just how subtle it is that yeah. I would be very impressed right. if it got that nomination. At this point, I, I like super impressed because it's not something that they typically do go for, in my opinion. Yeah, I would say the editing branch is probably the single least inspired branch in the Academy right now. Just in <laughs> terms of uh, since we expanded, they have three times total nominated things that weren't Best Picture nominees. You know, it, it, it is very much a branch that goes for what are my favorite films overall? And then also it's a branch that goes for look at me in your face. We're going to go for Vice and Bohemian Rhapsody because they have lots of cuts over something like Roma. Yeah. So um, to me, it getting into editing is kind of contingent on it being a Best Picture nominee. Which is so weird because when you think like, I'm, I think I'm remembering this right, but didn't Memento get, a nomination for editing. It yeah, did. Yeah, but the, ed- the editor's branch was so different back then. I know. In the 90s like, and early 2000s, they used to go for stuff. Yeah, it's like nowadays, whenever we talk about like um, our predictions or uh, even these awards prospects, sometimes I-, I only reference the last 10 years because, you know, it's, it's just no point in going back any further than that, in my opinion. Also, too, I, I have to say this on record. I know I've said this on the main show, but I want it on this review forever. I really do believe that the father is going to get every nomination it possibly can get, but still miss best picture. Very likely. I know, Matt, that you keep mentioning Foxcatcher, and I think that that is a very appropriate example because I think that was a similar movie that people had a lot of respect for in terms of the filmmaking and their performances, and it got it in a bunch of places, but on this sliding scale where passion really needs to be a factor for you to get into the best picture lineup, it probably just narrowly missed. And I could see a very similar situation happening with this movie. And I think that it is borderline in enough categories where it can go one way or the other. And picture is definitely one of them. 
the one know, thing I that think... is holding me back from making the full Foxcatcher comparison is that at that point, Bennett Miller had already directed a movie that had a Best Picture nomination. Sure. And, and he won a Florian can, Zeller. too. Yeah, and he won a can, and this is Florian Zeller's debut. He's not a name in any way. No. So I don't know how confident I feel about him getting a director nomination, even though it is definitely a very directed film and one of the best directed films. But, yeah, so my point to that, though, if, if Ryan... Uh, Ryan, I'm really curious to know, do you think Florian Zeller is going to get a BAFTA nomination? I would say yes at this point. I don't have my BAFTA nominations in front of me, but I would say yes. See, now, Bennett Miller did not get a single director nomination from any of the main precursors that season. He got that can win, yes, but no Critics' Choice, no DGA, no BAFTA. We know Florian Zeller is going to show up at first time DGA. I think he's going to get the BAFTA nomination, and that's more than what Bennett Miller had heading in uh, precursor-wise. I get the the Foxcatcher comparison for um, to an extent, but I do think that like you know, and Matt, I told you this after I initially saw this back in December. This is the type of movie that like my grandparents, if I showed it to them, they would actually really like enjoy it and absorb it, and like I could see them going to the movies to see it. I think like if this were a normal year where the theaters were open, I do think uh, this it would be interesting to see how the father played for audiences because I do think it, it despite it being this like colossally brilliant piece of filmmaking and um, really twisted psychological movie, um, it does kind of appeal, I think, to like, an older brand of academy voters that like, you know, classy proper you know british movies sure and it takes up an issue that is relevant to older academy voters yeah starring older you know starring these older actors whom you know uh, people of uh, of a certain demographic you know recognize and enjoy and possibly identify with so i do think that I think that the Academy is going to be more open to this movie than some of us are giving it credit for. I mean, they nominated a more. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it feels like a version of a, a more accessible version of a more. Exactly. I would, I think that's a perfect way of describing it. So, and especially like, honestly, if, if the film does well with the BAFTAs, I just don't see, I don't see the roadblock here. I, I mean, as long as it gets PGA, I, I'm not, I don't know. I just feel like if BAFTAs are on board, what what's the hold up? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the hold up is <laughs> SPC's strategy. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah. They they have always been weird with um like what they do with screeners and how they get the word out and release dates, but I think that they've been mostly to be able to get by because I guess they do really well with in-person events, but they don't have that this year and are still sticking with the same strategy in terms of getting it out to people. It seems like, and I just don't know how that's going to work. Well, do you think that the late release strategy, do you think it's something that could benefit the father? It could possibly be one of the last movies that Academy voters see. Honestly, that really could go either way because the flip side of that is it might be one of the last ones they've seen, but it keeps it from building some much needed momentum. So it, you know, it it really, it really could go either way. And just throughout the past year, 
they weren't as free giving with festival appearances and screeners and screening links as some of the other films were that also were opening. And they're opening really late, like not Minari and Judas and the Black Messiah late. They're opening really late. So, um, yeah, I, I do think that's a problem. They're also not having as much advertising. Um, Hopkins just by his nature doesn't want to be out there campaigning. And obviously he's the heart of the film and you get the occasional like Clayton Davis appearance with him, but he's not doing much. So I, I, I do think that is going to be something that holds it back. So we will see. Will brings up a good, a good point. And like we, there's been a lot of discussion, especially recently about who will win best actor. And I, you know, I'll, we've been talking about best actor in terms of like who will win what precursor. Um, because a lot of people think that Anthony Hopkins will win the BAFTA, which I agree with. Um, but a lot of people have him predicted to win the golden globe, uh, in a few days, which I don't agree with. Um, and I think the fact that the campaign has been messy for the father will, on top of like what Will just said about like um, his selective uh, campaign appearances, will just further give the trophies to Chadwick. I don't disagree with that. And, you know, to be clear, I think the message that everyone at MVP has kind of been on board with from the very beginning is that Chadwick will win the Oscar in the end, no matter what. But Hopkins is in a sort of similar situation where it's like, hey, you know, 83 years old, now or never, are we giving him a, uh, a BAFTA? Are we giving him a Golden Globe? Are we, I'm sorry, are we giving him, like, SAG? Are we giving him a Golden Globe? Like, you know, he hasn't won some of these prizes before. No. I really feel like that when it comes to his path to the Oscar, like, there is one, but it requires a lot of things to fall into place. And if one of those things misses, then... Uh, Chadwick Boseman is going to win. Like, yeah. like you know, uh, he needs to win the Golden Globe. Hopkins does. He needs the father to get in at Best Picture. He needs probably also Boseman to be double nominated so they give can mm-hmm. have some place yeah. to give him an award in another category. Like, all of these things need to fall into place for that to happen. It could, but it's a very treacherous road to get there. And if one thing misses, then he's not going to win. The other thing I will say is that while he is not campaigning in the traditional sense, he does have a social media presence and he is very, very charming in it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah so he's not. Yeah. He's not completely absent from voters' view. Yeah, if there but, were any year to benefit Hopkins, it would one. be this year. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, his, his existence online served as a campaign when he wouldn't be at cocktail parties in a normal year. Yeah. And his chief competition. Um, yeah. Can't. Yeah. Can't you can't campaign either. <laughs> <laughs> so in that regard, I still do think that, you know, there are, as I mentioned on a previous podcast, you're either predicting Chadwick Boseman to sweep the season or you're expecting for there to be a little bit of a dip here and there. But I think we all are in agreement that Chadwick is still going to win in the end. I think Josh, you're the only holdout. Is that true? Uh, no, I still have Hopkins. I think. Oh, you do. I thought you had switched, Dan. I I go back and forth. It depends for me really on whether Bozeman gets the supporting actor nomination for uh, uh, the Five Bloods. Yeah, like I I haven't moved off of Hopkins yet, 
I am obviously very tempted to do so. And I think what I'm waiting for is for like one of those dominoes to fall. And as soon as it does, then I will switch. But there is still this intuition that I have that I see the path and yeah, it's kind of winding, but it still can happen. And, you know, as I have learned throughout many Oscar seasons, sometimes there's an instinct you have to listen to until you get definitive evidence to the uh, to the contrary. And right now that's what I'm doing. Although I would still tell people that your safe money is still on predicting yeah. Chadwick to win, yeah. which I might even still predict him to win at the very end. Yep. You don't yeah. want to be a prisoner of the moment. That's for sure. <laughs> and if I had listened to all of you two years ago, I wouldn't have gotten Olivia Coleman. So sometimes it's you true. To to <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Well, with that said, that'll be our discussion for the father here on the next best picture podcast. Tom O'Brien, tell everyone that's listening where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Ryan C. Showers. You can find me on Twitter at RCS818. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And Will Mavity. You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, drop us a comment there. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.